And now it's time for Eastcast and reports from coastal stations. East Utsira, West Utsira, South West Utsira and North North East Utsira. Wind South West, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll. Westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now, now, now. Hello and welcome back to Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB. Eastcast is a monthly delve into the arts, the culture and the community bubbling up in East London, but always resonating way beyond this little corner of the world. So wherever you're listening, good to have you with us. Just a quick warning, uh, we will be playing something with strong language later, so if that's not your thing come back in a while. I'm Pearl Wise and I'm here with Johnny Virgo and Sasha's here with us too. Hello, good evening Eastcasters. Good evening one and all, hi. So this month we hear about Hackney's longest running independent cinema and about the process behind a collaborative performance art exhibition with the residents of a Hoxton housing estate... And Jessie Lawson starts a conversation with Waltham Forest Walkers about a topic that still remains taboo. Also, singer-songwriter Phil Cosby will be playing some live music later on. Great. But first, we're joined in the studio by Kasia Usinka and Viv Ellis to tell us about Nasty Women, a female-focused festival in Hackney Wick um, later this month. Uh, Kasia and Viv, welcome Hello. to the studio. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. It's great to have you here. So, Nasty Women, what is it? It's actually a global movement, I've heard. It is a global art movement, and if you've not heard of it and you think that's a bit of a funny thing to call yourselves, it's uh, Nasty Women is actually what Donald Trump called Hillary Clinton during a televised debate because she dared have an opinion. And a group of artists in America decided, well, then we're all nasty women and put on an art exhibition to raise funds for charity, for women's uh, charities. And so a global art movement was born and we decided London needed to have this as well. So something positive coming out of a Donald Trump comment. How yeah. unusual. <laughs> no, yes. Um, so why did you decide to start something in London? What, what inspired you so much about what was going on in the US? Well, it wasn't just the US. I think a lot of us were on the Women's March in London. In fact, over 100,000 men, women, uh, kids, adults, dogs even. Um, and I'd been to plenty of protests and marches and signed petitions and thought I want to do something rather than just sign another petition and something that's positive and bringing people together and heard about nasty women and thought, wow, New York does can do something like that. We'll show you London can do something like that too. I mean, it's quite an ambitious few days. Can you talk us through it? <laughs> it's a crazy number of days, yes. Uh, so we have uh, opening night on Friday, and then we've got uh, Saturday and Sunday. So it's a free exhibition. All the art is for sale, 
because it's to raise money for end violence against women. So that's where all the proceeds are going from this weekend. Which is? So End Violence Against Women are a coalition that represents uh, some 40 different women's organisations. So they're very intersectional. And they, uh, it sounds rather boring, this next bit, but they fight um, at various government levels to change policy and law as regards women's issues and women's rights. So it's something that's really quite key. Uh, it's behind the scenes, but it makes a huge amount of difference. And it seems crazy that in 2017, this is still, you know, we're still having to yeah. change these kind of policies. Um, yeah, very, very much so. I mean, even now, there are still two women a week are murdered as a result of domestic violence. And that's like Britain in the 21st century, and it's just got to stop. Yeah, mm. of course. And so the art, tell us how, what, how well, did that happen? Yeah, so, so it was an open call. It was an open call, mm-hmm. and we have art from the Middle East. We've got it from America. We've got it from across Europe, uh, the UK. It's mostly uh, women, but we have uh, some men, and even I think the youngest submission is from a ten-year-old boy. He was very moved by what we're doing. Um, and it's everything from video, uh, virtual reality installations, we have some of those, uh, to sculpture, embroidery, painting, print, you name it, we have it. And the public can buy this art? That's it. Yeah. So the cheapest piece will be £5. The idea is it's democratic, everyone can come support, uh, come away hopefully with a piece of art, something that's quite unique. Uh, or if they feel a bit more flush in their pocket and think, oh, I might spend actually a bit more than a fiver, then that would be great too. And all those proceeds, so 100% of what you're giving, goes to end violence against women. And um, so you're doing this at the Stour Space in Hackney Wick. Was that, a, you know, why why Hackney Wick? Why the Stour Space? Uh, I got in touch with the people at Stour Space and they were really on board with this idea of nasty women and they welcomed us and said oh please come we really want to support this and Hackney Wick is as we all know is such a community hub for artists in London so it found a really good home um yeah that's uh, we've been very lucky to have them as partners so Cassia and Viv I saw that you both work in TV production that's your kind of bread winning job um how is misogyny these days what's it like for women in the tv world these days Ooh, it's still there um there's still big well gender pay gap which we've heard about recently with various presenters and that also happens in production jobs as well i can tell you from experience there's still a, a glass ceiling there's still a lack of women getting to the really top jobs but bit by bit have you had any kind of personal problems? Countless with, times. Well, give us an example. <coughs> um, things. A typical thing would be you're taken on to produce a particular episode in a series and there's another episode that to all intents and purposes is the same in terms of its challenges and that producer happens to be a guy and he's getting more than you are. You do, of course, have to make, I suppose, the... You have to take into consideration that maybe he's better or more experienced. I think if somebody has had more experience at a job, with this, particularly with the same company, then there might be a case for paying them a little bit extra, loyalty payment, whatever. But no, it happens an awful lot. 
And the casting couch is still alive and well too. Not with me personally, but it still goes on. What about you, Kesha? Um, Well, we we work in the factual side of television, which is quite different from drama. So I work as a director and producer, and for women, at least in factual, um, there's a lot more opportunity to get uh, those roles. Uh, On the other hand, if you're working in drama... If you have a look at the number of episodes of a well-known drama series, Doctor Who, in its 50-year history, I think has only had about eight women directors on it. And how many countless episodes? So they're making a big song and dance about having a female Doctor Who. Mm. That's it. Well, so there is some yeah. some progress in front, but this yeah. there has to be behind, actually, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Let's rewind back to Nasty Women, because mm. that's what we're here to yeah. talk about. Um, so give us a bit of a lowdown. It's from Friday the 22nd till Sunday the 24th at the Style Space in Hackney. What will be happening over those three okay. days, other than the art auction yeah. that we talked about? So uh, the art is free to come and see. We have a few ticketed events. So there's a smaller room at Style where we're having discussion panels on things like the portrayal of women and girls in the media, art as activism, um, personal to political, so people's own stories of personal hardships and what drives them into activism, uh, gender representation within the arts as well. So we've got interviews with journalists, with uh, film directors, um, all sorts of artists, obviously. Um, And then our big events are in the evening. So Saturday evening, we have got a brilliant lineup of female stand-up comics, which is going to be fantastic. We have a brilliant lady called Harriet Brain, who I don't know if you've heard of, but she does uh, art history ditties. She sings and plays. So if you're interested in hearing the difference between Monet and Manet to Abba's money, 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 you need to come on down. Uh, So it's going to be great fun. And then there's music acts afterwards. So we've got uh, electro-punk band Feral Five. We've got Miss Mohammed DJing. And on Sunday, which Viv is looking after, she can tell you what's happening. On Sunday evening, we start with spoken words. And I guess the star attraction, we've got some really great people on, but the star attraction... I guess, is um, Selena Goddard. 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 Sorry, Goddard. <laughs> who is doing a world kind of premiere of her new poem, which is called Red, and it's all about the tampon tax. So she's performing that for us, and there's about another six poets and spoken word artists also doing their thing. And then we hand over to some more music. So we've got some really great people. We've got a lovely singer called Lanray. We've got Miranda Hall and others as well, TBC. And then the evening finishes with a DJ set from Babes. Excellent. Thank you Mm. both so much for coming in and telling us about this full-on, really worthwhile event. Um, What's the website that people should go to? to So if you want to find out more about the events and get tickets, you go to nastywomenuk.com. It's just nastywomenuk.com. It's Nasty Women UK on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're everywhere. I think people will find you. Thanks <laughs> Thank so much. You. Thank, Thank you. you. Hope to see you there. So Jessie's away on holiday this month, but she's given us the second episode of her series of starting conversations in East London. 
last Eastcast, Jess walked down Kingsland Road and asked passers-by to talk to her about menstruation. This month, Jess walked around Waltham Forest and asked people for stories about masturbation. She then went to visit Nisha, a perinatal psychiatrist and sex therapist, to talk about what she'd heard. This clip does contain some strong language and sexual content, so if that's not your thing, perhaps skip the next ten minutes. Tá falando que quer fazer uma entrevista sobre a sua primeira punheta. Vai com ela. Até a tua idade, né? Yes, 13. 12, 13 years. 13? After sex education, you know, kind of jogged my memory a bit. And, you know, you can't start playing with it. And, yeah, just from then on, I guess. 13, 14, maybe. I think it was nine years old or something. Nine years old? I think so, yeah. But how are you going to say? Um, when you do something, you feel the chick, 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 chickening. Yeah. Yeah. So when the first time was just a chickening, it's not, nothing that happened, you know? <laughs> And there's just a bit of um, a bit of water, you know. It was not like no ready, you know. <laughs> I think I started really early. Like I remember when it happened the first time during gym class. We had to do these tests and at school, you know, like running and all this stuff. And then there was one where you have to climb up the pillar in like 10 seconds and I did that and then something happened <laughs> and I was like stuck on this pillar and every, my whole class was watching me and I was stuck on that thing and I was just like staying there and waiting and then it was gone and then I just climbed down again and I failed the test. Oh, actually, you know, when you start to hit puberty and you first ejaculated, that was actually quite scary because I was like, I don't know what the happening i wanted to go to my parents and say something's wrong down there i'm glad i didn't yeah is there anything could you talk to your parents about sex and masturbation and stuff like that oh hell to the no i got typical um back home parents now nah, that, that doesn't run in my family no no no, no. so where did you learn about it sex education and the most obvious place of porn We from Brazil. We like the samba, football, sex. Wank. This is masturbate. Yeah, this is very good, very nice. I love it. I don't know. We like too much sex, you know. We don't have. We don't have. We don't have the the good politics. You know, it's too much corruption. We need to stay too happy for I don't know, sexy football party. You know, we need to I don't know. I mean, I think that guys, it's like normal for them to do it younger and like everyone thinks it's like a thing, but for girls it's it's never like talked about and I don't know why, I don't know. My friend at school said that him and a, 
him and his brother used to have wanking competitions. No. They like had a bunk bed. Go on. <laughs> Go on. It's been like the first one to finish. No. <laughs> wow. I like it with my girlfriend. Sometimes we, I work with she. I love it. Yes. But I think it can be sexy if you do it in front of your partner. Yeah. Kind of. I think that can be kind of. That's it can be, right? It can be quite yeah, a sexy thing, yeah. There's also a sadness feeling attached to it, no? Not for you? Okay. I don't know, it's just like that. I think after the release you're a bit like, ah, oh, okay, what now? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit disappointing, yeah, no, it's a bit no? disappointing. But then you just start again, don't you have that? Like where you have a runoff, you just come like ten times or something. Yeah, Talking about this with friends, is they gonna like play with you, you know? You will work! <laughs> but uh, this is normal for me, it's normal. This one, five it's times a day. Huh? Five times for a day. Five times a day? Yeah. How does he New have long. the time? He's in a family, man. The back seat for Jesus. I discovered it probably by chance in the, in the bath with the, I can't remember, bath tap, shower head or whatever. But then, because of a nasty man talking to me on the train about masturbation when I was only about 12 I realised that it was not something that girls did so I stopped and then I rediscovered it after I had children my name's Nisha and I'm a perinatal psychiatrist and I work in East London I look after women who have problems with their mental health while they're pregnant or within the first year of having a baby before you were doing this you had a different job? Well, no, I did a training. I did a sex therapy diploma. And that's quite complementary to perinatal psychiatry, really, because sex for pleasure is the other half, really, of why we are the way we are. Well, it'll, it'll help them define themselves. It'll help people to work out what they like, what they don't like, and how they get there. Because if you can learn how to please yourself, you are going to be more able, in my view, to help somebody else know how to please you. I masturbated after I had sex. Right. And so it's really common that people say you have to get to know yourself. Yeah. But because of the stigma at school, because yes. of whatever reasons, I think... Yes, yes. Well, I think that that is a very common story because we still have a massive gender divide in terms of attitudes to sexuality. I mean, the biological differences are obvious. You know, male genitalia is there on the outside. It's going to rub against bedclothes. You know, you're going to catch it when you're in the shower. You're going to learn, especially around puberty, when everything's changing shape and stuff and you're a bit curious, it's much easier to work it all out. You, you don't catch your clitoris by accident. It's, you know, you have to actually find it. So it's a totally common story to discover masturbation after having had sexual stimulation from somebody else because you suddenly realise that actually that pleasure is available to you. Girls are sort of brought up with this, it's even today, which is really distressing, this notion that if you are um, sort of a, a sexually driven female, 
you're not within the normal range you know there is something about keeping your legs crossed that comes from who knows where and when but i think it's common cult across the world The other thing that came up a lot when I was walking down the street is that people watch porn to masturbate. Yeah, there's a lot of exploitation in the porn industry, so it's quite difficult to get away from that. The positives are that it's become so prevalent that there's less of a gender divide. It can help people feel less abnormal about their various tastes. I mean, I really see sexual function as being another biological function like eating because people have different tastes. And just because you don't like something, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means you don't like it. But because we just can't talk about it, there's all these taboos that people have. So it's very easy to really offend somebody by being very judgmental about their taste. Just the same as, you know, people used to think, uh, foreign food. It's all. Almost not worth talking about disadvantages because they are so obvious. There's the exploitation issue that I've already referred to. And then there's the whole business about homogenizing body beautiful and maybe condoning things that are not acceptable in terms of illegal sexual activity. And the fact that it's so easy to get hold of that it's very easy to become dependent on pornography for sexual pleasure. It is problematic for a lot of people. Is there anything else that you kind of has come up while we've been chatting that you'd like to talk about regarding masturbation? I was thinking about the fact that I believe, without knowing because it would be icky, that all my adult children are able to masturbate. I, my belief is that none of them would think there was anything the matter with it at all, and that I've got a sufficiently open relationship with them that I'm allowed to believe that without knowing. Do you know what I mean? Um, they, you know that funny story about a dildo that was given to one of my daughters in birthday that she opened in front of me. It was very, very funny. So there was that, and then I was thinking, what about one's parents? One doesn't really want to know about the sexuality of one's parents in the same sort of way, but I guess. I think it's really shifted between generations, so I would never know about my parents' habits, and I feel like I can guess my children's habits. I think we've really moved forwards in two generations. You know, sort of fighting taboos and allowing people to talk about stuff is a really brilliant way of addressing all sorts of things. Keeping it real on East Coast on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB. There's no way to link this next segment, so I'm not even going to try and do some intelligent link. So now for something completely different and unrelated. Um, I met up with Oliver Meek, the executive director of the Rio Cinema in Dalston, one of London's last remaining independent community cinemas. Um, and they're in their final throes of a fundraising campaign. Qu'est-ce qu'il a dit? Il a dit, vous êtes vraiment une dégueulasse. Independent cinemas are so endangered. I'd say there's only really half a dozen other true independent cinemas left. 
and the Rio has a huge place in people's heart because it's really been essential to this to this community for for a decade you know it's it's incredible survival I'm Oliver Meek I'm the executive director of the Rio Cinema and we're inside the Rio Cinema right now which is one of London's oldest loveliest cinemas an art deco picture palace and one of the last remaining fully independent cinemas in London at one point, I think there were something like 26 cinemas between Shoreditch and Stoke Newington. And many of those buildings are still there and they are, you know, snooker halls or mosques. But there was a real boom of cinema building in this stretch and also along the Holloway Road. And I think a lot of that to do was it was a very poor area. So people obviously didn't have TVs or uh, some of them living rooms or, or running water. So it was a real treat to come to the cinema. So around 100 years ago, cinema started popping up and there was a, a kind of arms race really as who could make the biggest, most glamorous cinema. The Rio was started as the, as the Kings and Empire by a lady called Clara Ludsky. And Clara was a Jewish immigrant who ran an auctioneer's shop just next door to here. And around 1907, she started a, a Nickelodeon in the back of her shop, which became incredibly popular. Uh, so much so that in a few years, she got the finance together to build a purpose-built cinema, the Kings and Empire, which was built in late Victorian style on, on this site. And then a few years later, the cinema was kind of rebuilt by an architect called um, Effie Bromage under the classic chain. And that just showed that really what they were doing at the time was considered a little bit old-fashioned and things were changing all the time. Obviously, talkies came in. So they created this very kind of bold Art Deco picture palace with the, the exterior that people kind of know and love. And since then, it's been through a number of changes. It's been everything from a, a cartoon cinema to the Tatler in the 70s that showed adult films in inverted commas and had live uh, stage shows. And then around 1977, the cinema was taken over by the local community and became the Rio, almost as we know it now. What does that mean, a community-run, owned cinema? How, how does that work? Well, I mean, at the time, it was, it was hugely important because for a period up until five or six years ago, the Rio was the only cinema in Hackney. And if you think of a, a borough the size of Hackney, that's extraordinary. So then at the time, late 70s, Dawson was obviously a very run-down area. It was very poor. There was lots of crime. There wasn't a lot going on. So the community got hold of this as a place that they could they could run for the community in terms of showing films, but also putting on events and special screenings. And that has stayed as part of the philosophy. So people often ask, what, what does it mean to be a community cinema? Now, obviously, like, like any kind of normal cinema, we show films, everything from James Bond to art house films that people want to see. But we also work with all the local schools in Hackney and do school screenings. We run a monthly classic matinee for the borough's elderly and actually beyond. And people come here every month from care homes for tea and biscuits to watch classic films for £2. We do a lot of events with other charities. We do a lot of fundraisers. And, and we try and serve the local community as, as best we can. And one of the amazing things about Dawson is the community is so very diverse. There's just a huge mixture of people. So we try and do all sorts of things to engage with those different groups in terms of film festivals and special events, but also making sure that the cinema is affordable and a community resource too. 
as magnificent as the cinema is and it's it's um we're currently sat in the auditorium and there's a stalls in a circle there's 400 seats and it's in a huge building it's very difficult to run a cinema with just one screen because you're very limited and it's very difficult particularly when you're in a huge grade two listed building with with many overheads that needs needs a lot of maintenance so We've been looking for a long time about ways we can get more out of the building and generate more money so that we can manage the building better and also continue to do all the fantastic work we do. So we devised this this campaign called Rio Generation and it's a phased campaign. So the, the first phase that we're crowdfunding for at the moment is to put a second screen in our basement. That's a really underused space. And, and the idea is we can fit a small auditorium in there with about 30 seats, which will mean we can do um, all sorts of interesting and adventurous programming, but we can generate money from private hires. We can do kids' birthday parties and it gives us really an extra revenue stream. And the other strand to this phase is that the outside of the building desperately needs some renovation work. It was last done in 1997 and it's looking very tired and run down. The inside of the building incidentally looks fantastic, but from the outside, it's very easy to drive past and think it, it looks like it's it's run down or closing down so we're gonna redo the signage redo the plastering redo the metal work redo all the poster boxes and hopefully that will uh, attract more people to come inside should we have a little look around let's wander down to the basement because that will give you a sense of what we're what we're going to do next okay so we're down in the basement and originally when i when i started here this was a virtually unused space it was kind of piled up with boxes and stock and this was used as a meeting room but it was immediately obvious to me that there was a great deal of potential here so in cinema terms we have one major difficulty which is we have a, a low ceiling and we have a beam here but through all sorts of playing around with mirrors and projectors and sight lines we've worked out a very clever design where we think we can have about 28 seats down here. It's already got toilets and there's another room uh, just the other side here where we're going to put in a little bar as well so it will have its own bar. And whilst the screen is going to be very, very small, it's going to make a huge difference to us. Even about 28 seats would be around 15,000 more admissions a year. Often there are films we see which are fantastic art house European films, for example, which we think are great, but we know there's not necessarily a big audience for them. And if you've got a 400-seater cinema and you've got 20 people in, that's bad news. However, if you've got 28 seats and you've got 20 people in, uh, that's terrific. The other thing that there's an increasing audience for is documentaries, and there's lots of terrific documentaries being released cinematically. So we'll show a few of those down here as well. But it will be a mixture of everything, really. And what's the timeline? Well, if we can get all of our money together in the next couple of weeks, which I'm, I'm confident we will, I've got a bit of work to do to get that in, we'll start immediately. We'll bring in the projector. There's not any kind of demolition work here, so we, we just start to build um, a, a seating rostrum. So hopefully we can do the build in about four to six weeks. But it's important we get it right. We're not under any hurry. It's, it's ready when it's ready. And then the work on the exterior that we're going to do, that's probably going to have to wait till the spring now. I'm just going to turn the light on up okay. here. I was just looking at these old um, posters. Is this the lady that... Um, That's Clara oh, Lutzky, yeah. yeah. Which, extraordinarily, we um, knew very little about her. And I um, w was trying to basically trace more information on her. So I approached the, the Jewish Chronicle 
and said, are you aware of the history here? And, and they, they ran a feature on it. And then through the feature, her great-granddaughter got in touch with us, who had no idea that this had been in the family or anything. And it turns out that she does film PR for it, and she had no idea. So really, really extraordinary. We're now just outside the circle of the, the Rio's auditorium. It's really unusual for a cinema to have a circle. I mean, back in the days when the Rio was built, it wasn't unusual to have cinemas with a you know, 1,200 capacity, and some would have three levels. But mostly now, cinemas of this age have converted the circles and turned them into other screens or other areas. That's one of the most amazing things about the Rio, that it's still intact, and we want to preserve that. We don't want to change it. If listeners are interested to find out more about Rio Generation, or ideally we'd like to pledge towards it, you can go to www.spacehive.com slash Rio Cinema and there's lots of information about the campaign and how much we need to raise and there's a fantastic incentive at the moment which is if you pledge £30 or more we'll give you two free tickets and popcorn to a future screening but also you'll get a year's subscription to the fantastic movie which is normally I think 47 99 I really recommend doing that if you're a film lover but also if you're curious about the Rio do come in and have coffee or come in and come and see a film because it really is a amazing cinema inside that most people don't know about well please do support that wonderful cause and uh on another note here, life has a way of throwing conf- coincidences and serendipity in our way. Our next guest is a guy that's a great alternative pop musician who I went to school with, but I had no idea he was making music. And I heard some of it, and it's heartfelt, visceral, and really well put together. His name's Phil Cosby. Hi, Phil. How are you doing? Hey, John. How are you doing? Cool. So what's the news? What's this latest project? Because I understand you've got a single uh, ready to drop and that's leading into something, isn't it? Yeah, so new record, uh, EP called Blue Days, and that is releasing on the 20th of October. So first off, uh, the single from the, um, from the Days We Are Young has just come out um, last week. Okay. And the video for that is premiering on Friday. Uh, this Friday, and yeah, yeah, so building towards the release on the 20th. Okay, so for those that don't know, can you describe your sound a little bit? Okay, so um, my first record, The Deal, was, uh, I guess, a bit more of a John Martin sort of vibe, and um, and it was full orchestration and uh, with a jazz drummer and double bass, and then it was very a lot of guitars on it, and I played all the guitars. So I thought for the next record, I kind of wanted to get away from the guitar sound, and I, um, I wanted to do an album that was kind of synth based. So that's what this new record is. It's it's kind of it's a synth based album. It's no guitar solos on it, and it's uh, it's kind of the the idea was a sort of Can meets Tangerine Dream vibe. That was the Okay, so was it sonically led, or was there something about the themes of the, that you're writing about that made yeah, you change? Yeah, so um, I've kind of been interested in nostalgia for a long time, and there was a track when, when I was younger, I saw the movie Risky Business, um, and there was a track by Tangerine Dream called Love on a Real Train on it, and it kind of, uh, it's a very evocative track, and it always stuck with me, and it kind of made me think that maybe nostalgia 
in music is more than um, a place-time association that maybe, you know, certain music has a nostalgic quality to it. Mm. And I kind of, I wanted to see if I could capture that in my music. So I set about this record with that in mind, yeah. I'm just bringing that feel. Okay, so I understand you're going to play a track for us live. What's this track called? Um, this track's called uh, The Days We Were Young. And um, it, it's kind of in that vibe, yeah, exactly. About the days we were young, nostalgia. That's the one, yeah. Cool. You want me to hit it? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Still be 
heart is still there waiting In a world that's filled with sadness My mind is only madness I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry That was fantastic, man. So I'm curious because I was listening along to those lyrics. That's the first time I heard that particular song. So you're saying you're capturing nostalgia. Is there a particular story behind behind the feeling that you're trying to evoke with that music there? Um, it's kind of a, a youth and togetherness thing. Uh, regret. Uh, it's a melancholy vibe. It's kind of... One kind of idea is, you know, a guy looks back um, to a night um, and a girl he once knew and kind of imagines, relives a night in, a, in his past and imagines um, what could have been, even though he knows ultimately it wouldn't have worked for whatever reasons, you know. So it's kind of, that's the vibe, yeah, in my mind. Cool. No, it's wicked. So I understand you put together this new band, and you're working with musicians who reflect your new aims, like the musical aims you've, you you were talking about earlier. Can you talk about some of the musicians you're working with on this project? Uh, on Blue Days, the new record that's coming out, um, yeah, I kind of uh, working with a lot of players from bands I really love. Um, on bass was Simon Edwards, who was the bass player on the late Talk Talk stuff, um, which I'm really into. Um, Malcolm Cato, um, who's uh, who mixed the record actually, is one of the drummers on it, and he's um, he 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 works with all sorts of stuff. You know, um, uh, one one of the better known people that he's worked with is DJ Shadow. He was his live drummer for a while, and uh, so yeah. And um, the other drummer was Martin Barker, who's done stuff. You know, he, with Robert Plant and Beth Gibbons, Portishead, Goldfrapp. Um, and in bringing together these two sounds, you know, the sort of can vibe and the sort of uh, uh, dream pop thing, uh, you know, it's pinned around that. So those were those guys. Mikey Rowe on uh, keys, doing the synths. He, um, he's, you know, worked with Dave Gilmore, Pink Floyd, and uh, lots of other people as well. And um, so, yeah, lots of good players on, on that record, yeah. Yeah, well, I can really hear how that tune would would work in that kind of kind of setting and arrangement. So, what up are you up to live music wise? Yeah, well, so uh, big headline uh, gig planned for eleventh of November, and uh, that's at Ryan's N sixteen in Stoke Newington, and on Stoke Saturday you. night. Yeah, and uh, if you go to my uh, Facebook, you'll see there's the ticket thing there. There's still uh, some early bird tickets up at the moment. Um, so yeah, come down if you like it. Come down; it's going to be great. I'll be. Uh, it's going to be some other serious musicians there that night, playing with me as well. Cool. So, so what are your? What's the link for your Facebook page or the best places Phil, to catch Phil you? Cosby Music, and you type that in in Facebook. That's the. What do you call it? The handle. Cool. That's <laughs> you. That's that you, right? That's your <laughs> Phil Cosby Music. Phil Cosby Music. Yeah. 
Okay, thanks very much, Thanks, Phil. John. Nice. No problems. Well, thanks for coming in, and we're going to play another one of your tracks later on. Cool. Thank you so much. So before our final section, I just wanted to let you know about the East London tour that we've created on the Travel Guide app easy travel that's izi travel um it's a geolocated map of many of the places that we featured on the show over the years so check it out go on um easy.travel and search east casts east london and you'll find it and so finally i caught up with artists rosalind fowler louise ashuk and eva um knutz I always get this wrong, Knut's daughter, um, in their studio as they were busy sewing together props for their exhibition, Permissible Notations Of, um, in collaboration with residents of the Wedlock Barn Estate in Hoxton. And um, this exhibition is currently featured at the Pier Gallery in Hoxton Street until the 16th of September. The music you'll hear in this piece was created with the estate residents as a live response to the film's that they made. The permissible notation of consists of a 16mm film, which is I feel like doing this, alongside a sculptural installation of objects and props which was used in the process. But more so, the props themselves are also gone on their own journey and transformation and will be shown as its own work within the exhibition. So it's not simply showcasing the props, it's, it's, you know, its own piece alongside the film. My name's Rosalind Fowler. I'm an artist and filmmaker, and I work primarily in 16mm film. And I hand process it using an ecological formula of coffee grains. I'm Eva Knutsdotter. I'm part of... Artist Collaboration Forthland. Well, we do various things, but we mainly work with diverse groups of people to find a new shared knowledge between practices and cultures. And through this practice, we make sculptural props, installations, and generally new formats for people to meet within. And the formats themselves become the artwork. I'm Louise Ischuk. So Eva and I work together through Forfland and performance is a really big part of our work. We work a lot with natural materials and sculpt a lot of things, whether it's a sort of social interaction or a set of objects. A big part of this process has been working for many years with several communities across London doing sort of socially engaged practice where gardens performances, new rituals and kind of ways of shaping or working together have come about. There's many directions you could start the conversation, but Rosalind and I used to be neighbours about ten years ago, but I recently saw her work at the William Morris Gallery and there was something about the 60mm film that I was just like, wow, this is beautiful. The texture, the way it flickered, kind of areas from the hand processing. And Eva and I had wanted to make a piece of work with film for many years that kind of documented some of the performative and mythical qualities that come out of working with communities. And it just, you look at that piece of work and you think, great, Rosalind would be a wonderful person mm. to work with. In this process of collaborating, we're all learning a lot together because we've all decided to collaborate in each other's mediums. So 
we're, we're working on this film and Fourthland have helped me hand process all the film and edit. I've helped make some of the objects and the backdrop. So it's it's been a really interesting moment of coming together. And also we've been working with the community on Winlock Garden Estate for quite a few years, so nine years in total. But this is the first time we've actually visited residents in their homes and bringing Rosalind in to that also enabled the permission to us to enter a new state with how our involvement with the residents evolved. It's been very interesting to also work with film in real time because nowadays how you experience something, whether it's a community project or a piece of artwork, it's all very quick and there's something about slowing down the gaze to actually look afresh at both ways of working with an estate, how it's represented and also how artists can collaborate across practices. So when we've actually worked on the estate we've always used really durational processes so on some of the spaces the bricks have been laid together by hand by everyone, the costumes for the performances have been made by hand by everybody involved. So this piece of work, which has essentially come together from visiting people's homes and creating this performative situation where a whole landscape of different stories and myths emerge, and then from that we've been creating individual performances and sets, so each person then reenacts their story in a public space. On the estate, on the estate. back on the estate, yeah. And sometimes other people reenact other people's stories or help hold the space for one person to reenact their stories. We've kind of developed the idea um, together for this specific piece of work, but what's really struck me is just the history of just the level of trust that actually Fourthland have managed to, to gain from the residents, which is amazing. Probably a lot of artists or filmmakers go to houses on estates or elsewhere and do an interview, but we approached it in a slightly different, sort of more performative way. So we actually bought this incredibly magical-looking green tablecloth flecked with little gold pieces, and we laid that out on the table every time we arrived at someone's house. And then we had a series of objects that we unwrapped. There was a candle, there was some incense, there was um, speaking. speaking tea, vision cards, some vision cards, a little bundle of earth from the garden, the garden. bells, bells. So we rang a bell at the start of it of uh, every time we met people, and then we initiated this conversation by inviting them to bring three of their own objects to the table, and that just became a way to initiate conversation and share, and, you know, it was an incredibly rich series of encounters because we went on a journey around the world in those house visits. It was amazing. So people were very generous with what they shared with us. We thought about what had come out of each of these encounters, and then these developed into kind of creating these performance pieces against this roaming sculptural stage set that we'd created that took on slightly different forms for each performance. There's very much this exchange between us as the artists and the residents and... And that's also reflected in the sound. Which accompanies the film. Um, that's entirely was created in one of the flats by a sort of live recording of 
many of us gathered there together feeling into what we thought was necessary, felt was necessary. Yeah, it was recorded on the estate, wasn't it, with, with different other, other residents. Yeah. And as a live response to the images. So it was a group response to what the image needed. Improvise, uh, yeah. And it was very much about bringing a physicality to it in the sense mm. of vibration and this idea that we're coexisting within so many traditions and cultures and we pass each other all the time and of course there are harmonies and disharmonies and just being quite truthful and playful and 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 challenging those very real situations that we live within so the sound itself becomes like a kind of microscopic experience of all of these different overlaps and vibrations at the same time. project is about shifting this gaze of what a housing estate is and we kind of came up with the phrase I guess that the estate is a, a collection pot of cultural inheritance and really sort of I guess giving people just space to have a discussion about how to view housing estates in different ways because there's a lot of things going on with the way we look at estates in the political climate at the moment and if we don't shift the gaze almost of how we actually are seeing these places which are actually this new type of mixture of edges and new cultures emerging from them all the time then how can we protect them as an asset to our society or an asset to our culture not only for sort of art making but just as a whole way of being so I guess we wanted to really celebrate that with the whole work. Through working with the residents in this way, obviously it's quite unusual for people to be given the permission and the space to fulfil certain fantasies and traditions and, and really perform in that way. Have people created new relationships and new ways of seeing each other? And what have your observations been about you know, how that's emerged? And is there a role as an artist to facilitate that somehow? It's a really good question, and the answer is yes in all directions. Although what's really interesting is it's a feeling, almost like they sense an edge of their cultural difference. They're in a new situation, and the edge dissolves. And you feel when you're there making the work that the energy is completely changed and shifted and everybody is looking at each other with a new depth and surprise. Everyone's always has this emphasis of you must speak to your neighbours, but you must sound with your neighbours or meet with them in curious ways is maybe more interesting or more long-term. It is very liberating, just releasing from the expected format on every level, from your culture, from the state, from the onlookers to the performers, 
And this shifting ideas of who's performing and who's actually giving and receiving is, is, is completely essential. People have learned fragments of other people's lives through these elements of private life. People know new things about each other. And that's a really beautiful thing, I guess. Time for us to say goodbye. Eastcast will be back soon on Resonance 104.4 FM with more sounds and stories from East London and beyond. In the meantime, you can find everything on eastcastshow.com. And to play us out is Marari by Phil Cosby from his upcoming Blue Days EP. So thanks for listening and join us again next month on Eastcast. Eastcast.